in Luke chapter 19 today, and we'll begin in verse uh, 28. While you turn there, I, don't, I may be overstepping my ground, but there's Phil right there, and Phil's kind of a good guy most of the time. And maybe you know Phil, but I haven't seen him because he's been uh, working from afar, and it's kind of getting a little bit of a, to be a little bit of a strain. Now there's his wife right there, and it'd be great if he could be back here. So that takes the Lord's doing. Um, so uh, if you will allow me to pray again. These are such wonderful, specific things we could pray for. The Lord doesn't owe us a thing. Don't misunderstand. But you want to connect the prayer to the Lord's supply, and that way it's easier for us to say, look what God has done, you see? So we don't pray to inform him, but this is for us. So we can establish a connection between the need and the one who meets the need, and then we sing his praises. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you know Phil, and you know about his devotion and love to you, and he's doing what he could to provide. Thank you for providing this situation, for sure. But it's kind of rough. It's a bit of a strain. He'd like to be back here with his wife, his family, church family. We'd like him to be back. Are we on target? Father, you know what's best. Ultimately, would you do what's best? From a human point of view, however, we surely do pray you would provide an opportunity for Phil to be gainfully employed here, closer to home. Lord, we're not going to nag you. We're going to continue to ask you for this, however, just to keep us on target. And we'll pray to you in advance this promise. We wouldn't dare. Phil wouldn't dare. None of us would dare take credit for any uh, such outcome. You would be really, really wonderful, however, if Phil could be back here. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't mind remembering to pray that, uh, that would be really good. So we're in, great to see you, brother. Luke chapter 19 is where we are, beginning in verse 28. Take a look, Luke 19, verse 28. And while you do that, I'm going to get my fancy watch out. Uh, I broke the band. It came off, but, I, but it still works. It's one of those things that keep going. I'll put it out there just to give you false assurance that I'm going to look at it. I, don't, I can't even see it. It's so small. I usually stop when a majority of you get up and leave. <laughs> but even then, it doesn't. I just keep going. Okay, look, verse 28. Gene, I know, Gene, you let me know. <laughs> verse 28. After he, it's the Lord, after he had said these things, he said a lot of things. He did some marvelous things. According to Luke 18, in a place called Jericho. Remember, that's where he ran into Zacchaeus. He was in Jericho. Uh, after he was in Jericho, it says he was going on ahead to Jerusalem. So if you track the Lord's travels, to go from Jericho to Jerusalem meant he was going from east to west. On the Jericho-Jerusalem road, I know it. I've been on it. It's the same road. Different surface, same road. Nothing's changed. 2,000 years. So he's going from Jericho to Jerusalem, I suppose, he wasn't informed about what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's going to die. Surely if he knew that, he would have bypassed it, right? Wrong. His whole purpose was to end up in Jerusalem on a cross so that you and I would live. He saw it coming. Sometimes things befall us suddenly and they're rough to deal with. What if you knew about a calamity well in advance? That would weigh on you, wouldn't it? He knew his purpose in coming was to offer himself as a substitute for you and me. He's making his way to Jerusalem. What we're reading about is the last week in his earthly life. He's going to die in about a week from what we're reading here in Luke chapter 19. In fact, this is called by some his passion week. Passion from the Latin passio, meaning suffering. This is the week of his sufferings. He's going to suffer. He's not on a tour of Jerusalem. He's not there for the good food to take in the sights. He's there to experience perhaps the most excruciating form of capital punishment devised by humankind. He'll be stripped naked 
he'll be beaten to a pulp. He'll be whipped. And he'll hang on a cross in a public area where people will hurl abuse upon him. And he'll suffocate to death. He'll lift himself off this cross so as to relieve some cramping. He'll cut down on his ability to inhale and exhale. He'll die. He knows it, every detail. He did it for you, for me. Do you doubt he loves you? Come on. Come on. So he's going to Jerusalem. Yerushalom. Yerushalayim, city of peace. Shalom. The word peace, right in the name of the city of peace. And yet, historically, it has experienced so little thereof. Folks, when you don't recognize the Prince of Peace, you don't have peace. He's making his way to Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. You've heard of that. Took its name from the fact that people who welcomed him spread palm branches in his way. Typical sign of respect for a royal personage making his entrance into a city. Luke's account leaves out the palm branches. Therefore, how do I know palm branches were involved? You read all four Gospels and you get a composite picture of these events. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all report things, different facets of the same event. You put it together and you get the biography of Jesus Christ. The other Gospel writers tell us about the palms. Hence, this took on the name Palm Sunday. He's entering Jerusalem on this day, Palm Sunday. Now, when he approached Bethpage and Bethany, so remember, he's leaving Jericho. He's traveling in a westerly direction. Before he gets to Jerusalem, he runs into these two places. They're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It says this, near the mount that is called Olivet, Olivet, Mount of Olives. Where did it get the name Mount of Olives? It had olive trees, tons, fewer today. Why fewer? Because the Romans cut them down to use it as uh, uh, kindling to burn down the city in A.D. 70. So he's uh, on the eastern, remember, Jericho over here. He's traveling in a westerly direction. You come to the Mount of Olives first. That's the location of these two places, Bethpage. It means house of unripened figs. So there you have it. You came to the right place. Be warmed and filled. I'll bet you didn't know that. It's the house of unripened figs. I don't know what we get out of that. I'm just trying to tell you what it means. I have no idea what the significance is. House of unripened. Now, we don't know exactly where it is, except it's near Bethany. Beit Ani, house of the poor. That we know about. Beit Ani. You can go to Bethany today. I've been here, there. You know who lived there? Who lived there? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. What was the relationship between Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Yeah, yeah, he was their brother. What happened to him? And then what happened? Do you think the word about his resurrection traveled around? Oh, you can count on it. You'll see it's significant in just a second. The Lord was often in Jerusalem. When he stayed in Jerusalem, he stayed in Bethany at their home. It's just a few miles outside the city. So it's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It's like a mountain, 2,660 feet in elevation. It's not like the Rocky Mountains, but it's still kind of high when you think about the Middle East, that area. 2,660 feet. So he's in Jericho. He's traveling west. He runs into Bethpage and Bethany on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So here's the deal. He's going, he's ascending the Mount of Olives on the eastern side. You do not see Jerusalem yet. You have to get to the summit and begin descending before you can look into Jerusalem. That'll be important in just a second. That's what happens. And in order to get into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, you have to cross a valley, a ravine called the Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley. How do you do it? On foot, across a pedestrian bridge, no longer in existence. The Lord often traveled across that bridge from Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. I'm not the only guy who knew he was on the Mount of Olives often. Judas knew that also. How else did he know where to find him? What did the Lord do on the Mount of Olives? Prayed. Got Shmonim. 
Garden of Gethsemane, Olive Press. He was there often. We were there, just some of us. Uh, Josh was there and Rebecca. We prayed. In fact, Rebecca really heard from the Lord there, a marvelous passage of scripture. And Josh, I think, was sleeping at the... T- no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so anyway, uh, that's kind of what uh, what's going on. So uh, he sent two of... It says, verse 29, he sent two of the disciples. Does your Bible tell you who they are? Yeah, not mine either. Something occurred to me the other day. All scripture is inspired by God, right? So is the stuff that didn't get in scripture. You ever think about that? God made the decision about what to put in, but he made just as much the decision about what to keep out. We go crazy over that. Sometimes we spend more time trying to squeeze out of God the stuff he didn't put in instead of looking at the stuff he done did. Why didn't he tell us the name of these two disciples? Apparently, we don't need to know. That's all. Yeah, but we want to know. Too bad. So there are two disciples. He said to them, verse 30, go into the village ahead of you, not Jerusalem. The village, Bethany, Bethpage, that area, go there. And uh, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. How does he know that? He's God. It's unusual. He's God. He's man. He's man. He's God. Which is it? Yeah. That's the mystery. He's the God man. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's fully God. And yet he masked his divinity to some extent. But he never relinquished it. He knows all things. He knows the details. Why is that important? Soon, the lives of his disciples are going to be thrown up in the air. He who they followed, devoted themselves to, were beginning to worship, understand. Soon he'll be taken. He'll be on trumped up charges Uh, violating every law of Jewish jurisprudence. They'll try him manifold times. They'll take him prisoner. They'll beat him up. Uh, They'll hang him on a cross. They'll put his dead body in a tomb. These followers are not going to know what to do. They won't know which end is up. Chief shepherd is gone. What happens to the sheep? So as to help them, he's reminding them, in his awareness of every detail, he's in charge. The Jews could not crucify him. The Romans could not crucify him if he wasn't willing to be crucified. I didn't say there isn't human responsibility for the treatment of the Son of God. There is. But I'm just telling you, nobody calls the shots. He is sovereign. Let me recommend something. When you run into tough times, and you may be in them right now, ask yourself two questions. But is God Sovereign, and is God good? When you run into not good stuff, bad stuff that hurts, help yourself out. Ask yourself two questions which warrant an answer in the affirmative. But is God sovereign? Are the circumstances of life calling the shots, or is God in control? The answer is yes, he's sovereign, and is God good? Yeah, but this isn't good. This doesn't feel good. I don't like, I know that. But is God good? Answer those two questions. Hopelessness sets in when we minimize the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. Stay with those two things. Be hopeful. He's sovereign. He knows about everything. So you're going to find a cult. Listen, no one has yet sat on it. What happens when you ride on an animal like this on which no one has yet? It goes wild. Bucks, right? Not this one. He's in control of everything. Even an animal given by nature to buck its rider. No, 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 no. He's totally sovereign. He controls all things. Bring it here, said he. Now, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You say, the Lord has need of it. He's anticipating all things. He's showing them everything they need to know. He's fully in control. Tell them The Lord has need of it. He is Lord and master, but he's an unusual one. 
You think of a Lord and Master as being the all-sufficient one who lacks for nothing, and yet he has need. Look, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. How could it be that a master and a Lord would have need of anything? He's an unusual master and Lord. He's one who, though he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, reduced his divine privileges and thus made himself needy. He had little or nothing of what the world had to offer. He didn't have a donkey. He didn't have a mode of transportation into the holy city. He reduced himself so as to become like you and me, so as to win ones like you and me to him. That's what he did. So, uh, verse 32, those who were sent, they went away. They found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, sure enough, they said, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. Apparently, that's all it took. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt, put Jesus on it. They gave something to him. Not much. They gave what they had, outer garment. What motivated them to do that? Some preacher? Nope. Some guilt? Nope. They gave as a natural emanation of gratitude. Listen to me. When you recognize the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us, something in you says, I want to say thank you by giving a gift to you. If you need some preacher to stir you up to give, you're not rightly motivated. If you have some external law or regulation obligating you to give, that is not the right motive. It's a love response to Almighty God. That's the only reason for giving. He doesn't need what we give. He wants the heart of the giver. Don't you see? Out of their heart of gratitude, they say, we don't know what to do. The least we can do is make for a more comfortable ride on this bareback donkey. Let's fashion a kind of saddle of sorts from our clothing. That's what they do. So, uh, do you notice the space of scripture invested in talking about a donkey? It's verse 30 to 35. A donkey? This is inspired scripture, right? My name's not in it, but a donkey gets spoken about? In five to six, what's the deal? must be that the donkey is rather important to the story. Is that possible? If so, why do you think this donkey is so important? Who said that? Thank you, Rita. It fulfills prophecy. Listen, 500 years before this event recorded in Luke 19, someone named Zechariah lived. You can read what he had to say in the book called Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, I'll read you this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Get this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is making a statement. He is saying, I am your long-awaited, prophesied king. He's fulfilling every prophecy about the coming Messiah. He's helping ones like you and I down to this very day to reject pretenders to the throne and to see Jesus alone is Messiah and Savior, for he alone fulfilled all prophecy. This had to be the mode of transportation. It couldn't have been a camel or, sorry guys, it couldn't have been a Harley. <laughs> it had to be a donkey because it was prophesied by Zechariah 500 years earlier. There's something interesting about a donkey. Uh, at some point in Israel's history, a donkey was looked down upon as being just a beast of burden. You know, no one wants to hang out with donkeys. But for a long time in Israel and in the Middle East, it didn't have this connotation. 
royal people would ride on donkeys. So it's not that uh, Jesus is denying that he's king by riding on a donkey. He's declaring the nature of how he is king. This is what I mean. If you were a king coming to make war against a people group, you'd be on a white horse, not on a donkey. But if you're a king on a donkey, you know what you're saying? I'm not coming to make war. I'm coming to make peace. That's what he's saying. He is definitely declaring that he's the king of Israel. And it was taken that way, I know that, because they wanted to crucify him. They understood what he was saying symbolically. But symbolically, he is saying, you know what? You people want me to wage war against the Romans who oppress you, but that's not why I came. I came to wage war against sin. That's your real enemy. That's what he's doing. They didn't like that. They were looking for a political savior, just like we are today. That's not the big problem. The big problem is the enemy within, sin nature. Jesus came the first time not to wage war against sinners, but to wage war against sin. That's what he did. He didn't come to wage war. He's on a donkey, humble and mounted on a colt. He came not to wage war, but to make peace between God and man at odds with each other. That's what he did. That's why he was coming. Now, how do I know that what he did was really in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy? Uh, is it not something I'm just reading into it? Maybe, except for this. Remember I told you about the parallel accounts to the same incident? So Matthew writes about this, and Mark writes about this, and so does John. I would like to read to you one verse from Matthew's account here. Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. He said, now this, what we're reading about, now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes directly. Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. He quotes directly from Zechariah 9, 9. That way you can know we're not making up this connection between what Jesus did and its fulfillment of an ancient prophecy because Matthew and John as well, if you check it out, are saying it is. <laughs> this is done in fulfillment of, of prophecy. So uh, the Lord is showing himself to be Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah they were they were looking they were looking for but it will be different when he comes again do you expect for him to come again yeah you should there are many descriptions of the second coming of the lord jesus i'll read you one revelation chapter 19 verse 11 and on and i saw heaven opened john is speaking john wrote revelation I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, then, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Who would dare take that appellation to themselves? That's the Lord Jesus. He who sat upon it is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Can you see? A king coming on a white horse is not coming to make peace. He's coming to judge and make war. Second coming. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. The power brokers of the world down to this very day are carving up the real estate of the world, and they're uh, 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 crowning themselves. Leader, whatever. Yeah, but this one seated on this white horse is crowned with manifold diadems. Nobody is as powerful as he is. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. What does that mean? In the ancient world, it was thought if you knew someone's name it, through a magical incantation, you could have power over that person. You please tell me who can overpower the Lord Jesus. No. Nobody. 
He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and on. First coming, he came as a lamb to suffer and die. Second coming, Lion of Judah to judge first coming he came for a little while second coming permanent first coming he came to wage war against sin second coming he comes to wage war against sinners if you have responded rightly to his first coming you have nothing to fear about his second coming get his first coming right he's the Passover lamb in fact That's what's happening in Jerusalem now at this time. Luke 19, feast, festival of Passover. Pilgrims, Jewish from all over the then known world have made pilgrimage on this, one of the three pilgrim feasts of Israel. This a special one, Passover lamb, lamb sacrificed for the remission of sin. And the Lord Jesus is there on this occasion. Why? He is the Passover lamb who suffered and died for the sin of the world. Everything is orchestrated. Everything is to define clearly. Everything is to persuade any thinking person he is who he said he is. So uh, verse 36, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Typical Middle Eastern way of showing respect for royalty. And as soon as he was approaching, That is to say, he's not in Jerusalem yet, he's approaching it, near the descent of the Mount of Olives. He has ascended the Mount of Olives from the eastern slope. He's nearing its summit, 2,660 feet high, before making his descent into, across the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem. He would go through a gate on the east called the Eastern Gate, also known as the Golden Gate. On this Palm Sunday, that's the gate he went in. That's the gate he will re-enter the second time he comes back. So he is uh, approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles, including the one with Lazarus, which they had seen. Did he have that many followers in Jerusalem? No. They followed him from Galilee, where he spent most of his earthly ministry. Kepharnachum, Capernaum. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Sea of Galilee. Nazareth, Cana, Mount of Beatitudes feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, all these events, Galilee, people followed him to Jerusalem. Disciples, they're praising him joyfully, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Random words? No. Direct quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. I'll tell you what's significant about that. That's part of a collection of psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel. Have you ever used the word hallelujah? Hallelujah. What does it mean? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise to Yahweh. Hallelujah. The first part of it, Hallel, means praise. The Hallel Psalms are praise psalms sung on certain special occasions like Passover. When there was a high expectation of the return of the Messiah. 
these people recognize Jesus to be he. So they take part of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118, verse 26, clearly messianic about the coming Messiah, and they sing it to the Lord Jesus, who is declaring his Messiahship. Now, let me tell you something that's changed. My people then were looking for Messiah. My people now ain't. If you go to Israel today, you will be struck by indifference and apathy towards any notion of a coming Messiah. You will run primarily into secularized Jews and others in the land who are simply trying to get through today, giving not much thought to tomorrow. Terrible. In this day, there was a high messianic expectation. Today, we're looking for politicians to save us, economists to save us, environmentalists to save us. But only the Savior can save us. So anyway, they sang this to him. And while this happened, verse 39, see, not everyone was so pleased. Some of the Pharisees, religious folk, religious folk, that's what they were. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, meaning rabbi. That's what rabbi means, teacher. His name was Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He says, they say to him, they're pulling rank because he's kind of a renegade rabbi. He didn't go to their schools. They're saying, hey, uh, tell these guys to stop praising you. Anti-Jesus people hate it when he is glorified and worshiped and praised. Did you know that? Anti-God people hate it when Jesus is praised. <laughs> Satan hates it when Jesus is praised. If you ever want to really do battle against Satan, if you want to create an atmosphere where he doesn't have much room to operate, then praise God in your home, in your life, in your church. Because the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. You want to bring God close, then praise his name. Satan hates it. Satan's people, these Pharisees, hate it. Rabbi Jesus, tell them to shut up. What's the deal? Satan is jealous of the glory given to the Most High God. So too are these religious folk. Religion hates Jesus because Jesus says to us, you don't need religion, you just need me. Jesus said, you don't have to jump through religious hoops. You need a personal relationship with me. I fulfilled the law for you. You need me inside you. No mosques, no church, no synagogue could save you. I save you. Religion hates that, can't take the heat. Competition. People were following Jesus. They were leaving their religious leaders behind. They say to him, you tell these people to stop praising you. He says to them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Rebuke them, the leaders say. He rebukes the leaders. You know what he says? It is irreversible. It is predetermined. It is inevitable. It is certain. It is irreversible. I will be praised. And then he slams them. Subtle, but real. He essentially says, inanimate dead rocks recognize me more readily than you do. Even they are more prone to give me praise than you, the religious leaders of Israel. That's a pretty serious deal. But that's what happens. So verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, okay, so you get it? Jericho on the east. Bethpage, Bethany, on the eastern side of the mountain. He climbs up. He's on the top. Now he sees Jerusalem. And what does he do? He cries. He wept. First time? No. He, uh, he wept over Lazarus. Remember that? Not the same. Same word in English, different word in Greek. 
When he wept over Lazarus, the word means kind of a reflective, sort of almost private, quiet, pensive, sobbing. This word for weep in the original language means uncontrollable outburst, loud, visible, within the earshot of anyone nearby, profuse, tearing up, shedding of tears, uncontrollable, agonizing, weeping. Why? Because they rejected him who came to give him peace. And because he saw what was coming. He was not weeping because of his future. He was weeping because of theirs. He was not weeping because of his fate. He knew about it in advance. He's prepared to experience it for you and for me. He's weeping for their fate. They don't see it coming. He sees it coming. He could see the end from the beginning. How? He's God. In the form of man. But he's God. He weeps. In verse 42, he says, If you had known. If you had known. In this day. This day of visitation. If you had known. Even you. The things which make for peace. You know what's important? To know the things which make for peace. I do not want to discourage anyone from full participation in the political process. But no man-made political administration makes for peace. No organization like the United Nations makes for peace. No artificial substance, alcoholic, no drug, makes for peace. No internet pornography makes for peace. No gambling makes for peace. No sexual stuff, unbridled sexual stuff, makes for peace. No materialism, compulsive buying and accumulation of stuff, makes for peace. No cleaning up the environment makes for peace. No care of Mother Earth makes for peace. No causes you may give yourself to make for peace. Do you know the things which make for peace? It's the work of the Prince of Peace. Those are the things that make for peace. It's when this Messiah Jesus suffered and died in our place so as to appease the holy, righteous wrath of an otherwise unapproachably holy God. When you apprehend all that, his death, his burial, his resurrection by faith for you, you now have found the things which make for peace. Now you're not at odds with God. You're in a peaceful relationship. You're an adopted son, an adopted daughter. If you do not have fundamental as the creature, if you do not have fundamental peace with the creator, you're looking for peace in all the wrong places. That's the world situation. If you had known the thing, he said to the city of peace, Yerushalayim, if you had known the things which make for shalom, what an irony, the city of peace rejecting the source of peace. And as a result, the city of peace has experienced so little of it in all of its history and down to its very day today if you had known but now they've been hidden from your eyes what now they've been hidden the things which make for peace have been hidden from your eyes and this explains the situation of my people Jewish people down to this very day <clears throat> because they would not accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah because they would not, they could not. Because they hardened themselves, they were hardened down to this very day. We were in Israel, Josh, Rebecca, and maybe others here who I've just missed just a few weeks ago. We had our guide, Isaac, fantastic, like walking encyclopedia. This guy knew Old and New Testament better than uh, probably all of us. 
how could a guy be so familiar with the contents of the holy book but not know its author? We're not mad at him. We're praying for him. I'll tell you how. Because of this. Because my people would not accept our Messiah. Now we cannot. What do you mean? Romans. God has given us to this day ears that hear not, eyes that see not, a spirit of stupor down to this very day. I have two sisters. They're older. We don't fight. We talk. I talk about Jesus from time to time. When I see them, they live elsewhere. We don't have fights. We don't have arguments. It's worse. We have sheer and utter apathy and in, in lack of interest. I can't even get a good argument going. Totally irrelevant what I have to say about there, my Messiah. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day, a spirit of stupor. Is God finished with the Jews? Hang on. Read the rest of Romans 11. Find out he's not done. But this explains to me the consequence. They would not, we would not accept our own Messiah. And now generally we cannot. There are exceptions. There's a remnant of Jewish believers in every generation. God has always kept that going. But as a, as an, as a people group, we are rejectors of our Messiah. We did not recognize the day of our visitation. We chose not to, and now we can't see. This is the consequence. Blindness, spiritual blindness, down to this, down to this very day. And how much peace the city of peace, Jerusalem, has forfeited because it did not recognize the things which make for peace. The Lord went on to say, verse 43, days will come, will come, future eventuality. How could he speak about the future? Time does not limit God. Don't you see it? We live in light of past, present, and future. He lives outside of time. He uses time just like he used a donkey uh, to accomplish his purposes, but he's not constrained either by the donkey nor by time. He's God. You ain't. Did you know that? He sees the future. Days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade. He's describing a rather typical ancient form of siege warfare. The days will come in the future to this event when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, surround you and hem you in on every side. What would enemies have in mind in doing that? Well, it keeps the people you're besieging in and it keeps food out. You starve them to death. That's what happens. And they will level you to the ground and your children. Yeah, even kids within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. If you have been to Israel and you've been on or looked upon what's called the Temple Mount, I'll tell you what you did not see. You did not see the temple. You saw another structure, but not the temple. Why? They will not leave in you one stone upon another. Forty years after this, Luke 19, the Romans came, A.D. 70 besieged Jerusalem over a period of 143 days, did this very thing, created horrific starvation. Some people estimate up to a million died. The Romans crucified on the Mount of Olives, on those olive trees, 500 a day. It was horrific. Jesus saw it. He wept. Why? He didn't come to make war. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he weeps when the means of salvation, him, is rejected. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Romans are not to blame for what happened to my people. The Nazis are not to blame for what happened to my people. My people are to blame for what has happened to my people. That is not a popular thing to say. But I'm telling you, when the sheep reject the protective fold of the chief shepherd. They are subject to ravenous wolves down to this very day. They're coming for us again. 
we will be persecuted again. It's happening again. The alignment of nations is against us again. I didn't say the people who do it are not responsible. I didn't say that. I just say if my people recognize the day of our messianic visitation, things would have been entirely different than it is. A.D. 70, Titus, Roman general, led the 10th Roman legion against Jerusalem, he being the son of the then Roman emperor Vespasian. It was horrific, and it was recorded by a historian known as Flavius Josephus. Who was he? A Jew, a traitor. He was leading Jewish people in revolt against Rome when it looked like Rome was going to win. He became a turncoat, went over to the Roman side, even took on a Roman name, Flavius Josephus. That ain't a Jewish name. He identified with them. He's a creep. But he's a historian, so we read. Would you like to hear Josephus's account, an excerpt of what happened in A.D. 70? Here it is, his words, 2,000 years ago. All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever the misery seized them. For a time, the dead were buried. But afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan. And spreading out his hands to heave, he called God to witness this was not his doing. And Jesus wept. Almighty God takes a lot of hits. If you're so good, how does this, why is this happening? Listen to me. Almighty God spared not one thing necessary to procure our salvation. Even to the extent of offering his only begotten son. the horrific nature of the world situation today cannot be blamed on Almighty God who weeps. It is blamed on us who've made the choice to see Jesus and reject the self-same Jesus and to look for artificially fabricated means of peace apart from him. Welcome to the lame, inane, empty words of politicians and world leaders today with sick and silly proposals that are cosmetic at best with reference to what our real malady is. We're at war with God and we will not win. And Jesus weeps. And Jesus weeps. Don't let him weep over you. Say, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my life for thee. Say, grant me peace. One hitherto at odds with God, so holy, me so unholy. Say, I recognize the things that make for peace. Your blood makes for peace. Your blood satisfies the righteous 
indignation and wrath of Almighty God. Apply it to me. Your death, your burial, your resurrection, those are the things that make for peace. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. If that's true of you, can I tell you something? You have what matters most, though you may not have the rest. <laughs> you may suffer great losses in the days ahead. I think you're going to, and so do I. I am not a prophet of doom, just, I hope, an objective analyzer of reality. The worst is before us, and then it will get better. <laughs> loss of a house, loss of a job, loss of health, pales in comparison with loss of the things that make for peace between creature and creator with whom we have to make do. If you know the things which make for peace, if you are at peace with the creator, you have everything you need. The rest is cosmetic. You won't need it in eternity anyway. Relax. Relax. <clears throat> so next week, um, if the Lord hasn't come before then, we'll continue. And uh, my goal is to finish our study through verse 48 next week. We'll see. I want you to see more. This is a tough passage, huh? I mean, tough not in the sense that it's tough to understand. Tough in the sense that it's, it's tough to, to, to consider and to digest. Did, did you see what it cost the Lord to suffer and die for our sin? It's just that serious a, a violation we have committed. Can you see how serious it is not to recognize the day of visitation? If the Lord is impressing himself upon you today, do something about it because you may not be as able to respond tomorrow. I must tell you this. The right response to divine revelation begets more divine revelation. But if you resist divine revelation given, you get less. The way to know more from God is to respond to what he has shown you. The way to know less of God is to resist what he has shown you. See, my people would not respond, therefore they could not respond. That could happen to us. Don't let it be you. Lord Jesus, thank you for... Oh boy, those words seem so empty. But we mean it. Thank you for all that you've done, are doing, will do. For one such as us, and at the same time you desire for all to be saved, for none to perish, so you weep about those who... Refuse your salvation. Could it be possible that you might give us that kind of heart that we weep for those who do not know you? It would be great. If you would give us that heart of concern. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for showing us the things which make for peace. You do. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Thank you for coming again. Between your first and second coming, here we are. Help us to live for you today in light of your second coming. Today, for your glory. Invested in your second coming more than ever before. Help us, Lord Jesus, between your comings to make an investment in eternity. Things that matter most. Things that make for peace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. See you next time. <laughs>